0: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting On Demand from Buffalo, New York. I'm recording tonight on Friday, August the 14th, 2020. It's been a wonderful week in the WrestleLomics universe. Another week has gone by, and just as last week, another week and another two articles are up at WrestleLomics.com. One on the Reddit census that we'll talk about today, and another entitled, I Believe WWE and In WWE. I will let you read that for yourself. If you haven't already So today Have you figured out the structure of this program yet? Every program needs good structure Just like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood There's a formula to it There's a song at the beginning A song at the end And we deal with our emotions And visit the land of make-believe In between So we'll do some quick news in a moment But later the Reddit census, WWE Q3, financial estimates, a SWOT analysis. What is that? I'll explain. And the dreaded topic of WrestleMania 3. All that, maybe more, maybe less. But first, According to John Alba, who is a TV and radio guy in the Orlando area, who's been reporting on Twitter on some wrestling news related issues lately. John Alba tweeted on Thursday that WWE is not just exploring having SummerSlam at the Amway Center, which is the major sports arena in Orlando, but is also utilizing or is exploring, also utilizing the facility going forward. For other events. The arena is currently closed until next year, but that doesn't rule out that WWE could take out a long term lease on the building since it's not being used for other events. Previously, there had been reports that SummerSlam might happen in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Doing SummerSlam and possibly any subsequent savings for the foreseeable future of Raw and SmackDown would allow WWE to continue taping in the Orlando, Florida area. According to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, NXT would continue to be taped at Full Sail, which is in Winter Park, Florida, not far from Orlando. Ring of Honor, which has not held an event since way back on February 29th, when they ran an event in St. Charles, Missouri. Ring of Honor announced on its official website, That it will return to producing new episodes of its TV program this month, taping out of Maryland, where the company, along with Sinclair Broadcasting, its parent company, are headquartered. The company wrote in the statement, ROH will adhere to a very stringent protocol, as well as the regulations set in place by the Maryland State Athletic Commission. ROH will be instituting the necessary testing and safety measures in a continued effort to prevent the spread of COVID-19. There will be no fans or staff who are not essential to the production present during these events. According to the Wrestling Observer newsletter, Marty Skrull, who earlier in the year had been re signed by Ring of Honor and had been placed as the head booker of the company, will be out as the head booker pending an internal investigation regarding allegations of sexual misconduct, those that were raised in the midst of the speaking out movement in June. For the duration, previous booker, Hunter Johnston, better known as Delirious, will take over once again as head booker. And Ring of Honor is not the only promotion of note returning to events with empty arenas. The Mexican-based promotion, CMLL, Consejo Mundial Lucha Libre, announced on Wednesday they will return to running their usual Friday night shows beginning September 4th, relying here on the great coverage from thecubsfan.com. The CML shows will air on Ticketmaster Live, which is a somewhat new video streaming service that has been set up by Ticketmaster. Streams of the shows will be offered at various prices. The standard Friday night shows will be offered for 97 pesos, which comes out to about $4.5 US. And CML's annual biggest event of the year, Anniversario, will be offered for 229 pesos, which comes out to about $10.36. These events, too, will be empty arena shows, but they also announced a plan to fill the building to 30% its capacity, which would be 5,000 people. I think we're talking about Arena Mexico here. Uh, they Their plan to put 5,000 people in the building, 30% capacity, if permitted, by the local government. The COVID death rate per capita in Mexico, uh, I don't know about Mexico City, but Mexico overall has a higher COVID death rate right now than than the United States uh, by a wide margin. COVID death rates in Mexico and in the United States are currently below their earlier peaks, but currently on the rise when you look at seven-day moving averages. And ourworldindata.org is a good place to look at that data. While we're talking about that, uh, Florida, COVID in Florida, cases per capita continue to be higher than that of the United States overall But Florida's trend of cases is going down as well as emergency department visits with influenza or COVID-like illnesses. That is also true for Duval County and Orange County in particular, where AEW and WWE tape their TV, respectively. The positive test result rate in Florida remains right at about 10%, which is what the Florida Department of Health COVID dashboard calls its target range. In a Russellomics legal update, here's the latest on WWE's class action lawsuit from shareholders over comments that were made about WWE's TV deal with a Middle East, North Africa TV partner. Essentially, the background on this is that shareholders are claiming that they were misled by WWE executives into expecting that there was a TV deal imminent in the Middle East, North Africa region. Previously, that TV deal was held by the broadcaster OSN, and as you may recall, the plaintiff's complaint involves claims that WWE's relationship with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia was falling apart, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is supporting a pirate broadcaster that is broadcasting WWE content, and that that is holding up WWE completing a deal with a broadcaster called MBC, Middle East broadcasting company, I think, which is owned in part, in fact, in majority by the government, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. By the way, how did the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia come to own 60% of MBC? Well, somehow they came in in ownership of it after the shakedown at the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh, shortly after de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman came to power in the country. But anyway, what's the news here? The judge has denied WWE's motion to dismiss City of Warren's class action lawsuit. The City of Warren Firefighters Pension System is one of the plaintiffs. Uh, The judge ruled this complaint, while not a model of clarity, adequately alleges an overall claim of securities fraud that is not only plausible, but also complies with the relevant heightened pleading requirements. The judge's ruling continued, While defendants have trotted out a virtual herd of objections to the CAC. I believe that refers to the complaint. On close inspection, none is a winner. So the case continues on. WWE attorney, longtime defender, Jerry McDivitt commented, We were naturally disappointed in the decision, but the judge made clear that he had to accept all the allegations as true. Now that matter will go into discovery. We expect the actual facts will show otherwise. Uh, McDivitt made those comments in a Law360.com article. So that case continues on. Uh, My general feeling is that the plaintiff will have a very hard time making this case. I've I've gone into some detail on previous episodes as to why. I did see an alert that came in today related to this case that there might be a transcript, that an official transcript was filed related to this case. Uh, The notice filing of official transcripts says that the parties have seven calendar days from the date on this notice. That date was July 30th, so that date has already passed. But the, the parties have seven days uh, from the filing of the notice with the court, or to file with the court, notice of intent to re- request redaction of this transcript. If no such notice is filed, the transcript may be made remotely electronically available to the public without redaction after 90 days. So maybe in a few months, we'll have a transcript related to this case, which I may or may not recite on Russell Nomics Radio. So moving on. And then from there, let's talk about the Reddit census. I wrote about this topic on RussellNomics.com. You can read that now, but let's, uh, talk about it here and maybe into some additional detail. So the Reddit census, do you, if you know what the Reddit census is, and if you don't, it's a, uh, survey that the Reddit subreddit Squared Circle, which if you don't know, is basically a massive online community uh, of wrestling fans where where various uh, threads can be upvoted or downvoted and all the stuff that gets upvoted rises to the top. And and wrestling news aggregators often rely on it to decide which stories to aggregate. Did so-and-so wrestler say something? Let's make a story out of it. It got upvoted on Reddit. It means people want to read about it, click on it. But anyway, Squared Circle. Uh, while not always a beacon for intellectual conversation, is a huge community of online wrestling fans with over five hundred thousand subscribing users. For some context, uh, WWE has its own official subreddit, which it it, it only started. Oh, it did start October twenty fifth, two thousand nine, and when did the the Squared Circle subreddit start. Oh, wow. June 2011. So I was wrong in my article. I need to correct this. So Squared Circle was created on June 28th, 2011. The official WWE subreddit, maybe they just haven't invested a lot of time or energy into it, is older, having been created on October 25th, 2009. But anyway, my point is the official WWE subreddit has 173,000 members which is a lot, but it is a fraction of the Squared Circle subreddit, which has over half a million. So for a few of the last uh, few years, they did one in 2017 with some slightly different questions, but uh, Reddit put out a survey in 2019, in May 2019, and they did another one very recently in July 2020. Uh, The 2019 and 2020 surveys contain many of the same questions. The 2019 survey did not ask about AEW, uh, do you watch Dynamite or the pay-per-views. It did in 2020. Of course, in 2019, uh, in May 2019, Dynamite had not yet debuted on TNT. So anyway, there's 8,000 responses to both the 2019 and 2020 versions of this survey. And I want to focus just on the U.S. responses, because I want to think about this in the context of U.S. TV viewership. And if that's what I'm going to do, just focusing on the U.S. responses will control for maybe any big differences there might have been in responses from one country or another from one year to the other year. So in each year, there are about 5,000 U.S. responses. So uh U.S. responses made up about 60% of the total responses. So 5,000 responses, that's a lot of people, but let's put that in context. You know, we said earlier that there's 500,000 global uh, squared circle subscribers but a better metric to think about is how many people are actually going to the subreddit each each day on average and it's been shared with me that uh, the subreddit squared circle on an, on a normal day you know a a column of uh, unique visits was was shared with me for a number of recent days and if you take the median you get uh, a median of 160,000 unique visits per day. That's global. And if we apply the share of 60% of the survey responses were from the US, if that can be applied to web traffic and say 60% of that web traffic is from the US, then we end up with 96,000 users from the US visiting Squared Circle daily. So almost 100,000, almost 100,000 People from the U.S., put that in some context, compared to TV viewership, let's say. Now, I remember when we're talking about TV viewership, we're talking about the average number of people who watched a program when you calculate the number of people who are watching over all the individual minutes. So when when you hear that Raw was viewed by 1.7 million people, which is about the range of what it's doing lately, when you hear that SmackDown was viewed by 1.9 million people, That doesn't mean that that was the number of people who watched any segment of the program, but that means, on average, if you picked a random minute from the program, that's likely the number of people that you're going to find who are watching the program in a random minute. So what I'm saying, in other words...
0: words,
2: There are more people watching Raw or SmackDown or AEW Dynamite or NXT... Uh, watching some segments of the program than the viewership number that we focus on. And I don't, we don't know what the, at least I don't know what the number of people who watched, let's say a minimum of five minutes is. But it's more than the number of people who on average were watching in any given minute. So anyway, where was I? We're estimating about 96,000 people from the U.S. are visiting Squared Circle every day. That is roughly 5% of the average, throughout the episode, audience of Raw. That is about, similarly, 5% of the average audience throughout the program of SmackDown. That's about 12% of the total audience this week for AEW Dynamite. That's about 15% of the total audience this week for NXT. Now, why does this matter? Why is this important? Why am I railing on this? Why am I trying to put this in, in context? Uh, I, in part because I think when we hear about online activity and because of the nature of what online activity uh, began as, where wrestling fans doing things on the internet by nature of the internet being a new medium, it started out very small, and the activity uh, of, of people talking about wrestling and thinking about wrestling and doing things related to wrestling online has grown over time and has grown in large part due to advents of uh, other parts of new media that allowed people to better access or more frequently access the internet whether that was uh, dial-up in America Online or the, the advent of broadband uh, in people's homes and then of course the smartphone getting into people's pockets so I, th- I think oftentimes the Thoughts, opinions, and preferences of wrestling fans who are, who are sharing those opinions online is often dismissed. And sometimes it is nothing but a vocal minority. And at other times, I think those sentiments are a bellwether for what's to come. So anyway, with, with that, that port part out of the way, what's also important about this data in contrast to TV viewership data is how I think this data is a great supplement for TV viewership data and vice versa. Why? I'm um, talking about specifically about the age demographics. Uh, now this Reddit census data has its own demographic problems. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But the demographic problem with the TV viewership data that we have is, is that it is disproportionately old. As you often hear, the P50 plus, the people who are over the age of 50, is the biggest segment of the audience for Raw, uh, because SmackDown is on Fox, on network TV now, we don't get all the demographics from Showbiz Daily, but probably it was the case when SmackDown was on cable. And it is the case for NXT that the biggest age demographic segment for those programs that we see appearing in the TV viewership data is people over the age of 50. And AEW Dynamite is the only program that has a lower uh, P50 Plus rating than it does a P1849 rating. Uh, which it does most weeks, but even there are some weeks, like let's see, one, two, three, four, five weeks ago, uh AW's P fifty plus was slightly bigger than its eighteen to forty nine demo. So it's close and it's bigger for the WWE programs. And that flies in the face of what we see visually uh at at wrestling shows when fans were allowed to go to them. You don't see an audience that is, you know, half or even in large part people who look to be over the age of fifty. And we know, based on a lot of data that's out there, and Nielsen just came out with their periodic total audience report the other day, older people tend to use older forms of media far more often than younger age groups. So this TV viewership data, while TV viewership is very important for TV programs and TV revenue has never been more important and never been bigger for wrestling programs. If we are trying to understand the wrestling audience, the wrestling consumer, I think we've got to bear in mind that the TV viewership data that we're looking at is disproportionately older people. And it would be nice if we had a supplement that helped us understand wrestling fans who were younger or more the age of the average or the median wrestling fan, however one would define wrestling fan. And the responses from the Reddit census may be just that. So again, while the P50 Plus group is often the biggest group for programming the U.S. responses from the Reddit census in both the years of 2019 and 2020, 96% of the responses were from people between the ages of 18 and 49. And in fact, a healthy majority are from the younger half of that age group. In the 2019 sample, 78% of them were between the ages of 18 and 34. In 2020, 71% were between the ages of 18 and 34. Now here's the problem with the Reddit uh, demographic makeup. 91% of the US responses are male. And the TV viewership uh data that we have even in the younger age group breakdowns shows that the makeup is really closer to 30% female to 60 30% female to 70% male or 40% female to 60% male. So overwhelmingly male. In this sample, probably overwhelmingly male in the population of the people who go to Squared Circle in general. I I won't theorize here why, but you can go to the subreddit yourself and take some guesses. So there's a disproportionate representation of men and a disproportionate uh, underrepresentation of women. And that's not all. In terms of race or ethnicity, 78% of U.S. responses are white. 10% 10% are Hispanic and 5% are black. Uh, Stephen McMahon mentioned in an interview a few weeks ago with AdAge that the African-American audience is 22% of their audience. I'm guessing that's from TV viewership. So the, the WB audience is in fact disproportionately African-American or black uh, relative to the general population. And that's consistent with an older study from 2013 uh, by Scarborough research that showed About half of wrestling fans are from non-white minority groups. And again, here we have white people making up more than three-quarters of the responses. Now, I think the thing to do here, and I have made some attempts to do this, but I just haven't quite been able to figure out the math, but I think the thing to do would, would be to make estimates about what the actual makeup of the wrestling audience is in terms of demographics, and then make adjustments to adjust for the under and over representation of uh, the relevant groups but until I can figure that out we'll talk about what we have here which is just the results so the major takeaways that I get and there's a number of questions in this survey and I'm just going to focus for now today on the questions about wrestling programs and do you watch them do you not watch them do you keep up in some other way do you not follow it at all and I'll I'll read verbatim what the actual responses uh, options were so that everybody's clear here. But I, I want to talk first about you know, something that I think people do talk about sometimes and you know speculate about. I hear a lot of uh you know sometimes people send in their questions to to podcasts and ask questions along this line these lines of you know I I don't follow the product on TV I don't watch it on TV very much but what I do do is I listen to your podcast and that saves me the trouble of having to sit, sit there for three hours or whatever it is or I still go online or I go on Twitter or I go on some news website and I follow the product in one way or another but I don't necessarily follow it through sitting there and watching the TV program. So I think some you know these these questions that are asked in the survey sort of get to that kind of phenomenon. So again there's a number of questions there about different wrestling programs. Uh the programs that are asked about are uh, WWE Smackdown, WWE Raw, WWE Main Roster Pay-Per-Views, WWE NXT TV. Nxt UK, uh, NXT Takeovers, 205 Live, Ring of Honor TV, New Japan Pro Wrestling, Impact TV, and then only for 2020, there are questions asked about AEW Dynamite and AEW pay-per-views. Now, the, the possible answers are slightly different in some cases, uh, particularly in the case of pay-per-views, and in the case of NXT and AEW, I think, uh, you know, I did not write the survey. I think the Whoever was writing the survey wise to understand whether people were watching you know, Dynamite or, or NXT or, in the case of pay-per-views, uh, were, were watching them live or were watching them after the fact. Obviously, that's relevant in the case of AEW and NXT because they run head-to-head live. But the possible yes answers may have included, yes, I regularly watch the program every week as it airs, or yes, I occasionally watch them as they air, but sometimes I watch them later, or yes, but I watch them later, not as they're airing. So there's three different possible kinds of yes responses there. And then two different no responses. No, I don't watch or follow the program. Or no, I don't watch the program regularly, but I do try to keep up with news and storylines. So there's some interesting information here, and I've got some uh, graphs and tables on the article on russellnomics.com that you can look at. So I'll keep it to some Takeaways here rather than just reciting numbers. But basically, I, th- I think that no, I don't watch, but I keep up and follow the news or storylines is a very interesting response. And we don't get much measurement of that kind of consumer activity uh, elsewhere. And basically what I, what I surmise from this is that there's a lot of passive engagement when it comes to wrestling programs. Wrestling fans, at least in the case of this survey, don't necessarily you know, have the sort of binary behavior of either being totally in on a program or totally out. There are a lot of people who are in the middle. So the most interesting thing to me here is that is the, uh, the change from 2019 to 2020 of Raw and SmackDown. In 2019, you've got more than half of the responses saying that yes, they watch SmackDown in some form, 55%. In the case of Raw, almost half, 47%. The following year, both of those programs are under one-third, or less than one-third, the 30% on SmackDown, 31% for Raw, are saying that they watched the programs with any regularity or time shift. But a little more than half of them, in, in both the case for Raw and SmackDown, they're not watching, but they do keep up. So people haven't checked out completely on Raw or SmackDown, but less than a third of these respondents are actually watching it. Uh, among this group, AEW Dynamite is the program that people most often say that they are watching, uh, with any regularity or time delay. 65% for AEW Dynamite, 64% for AEW, or I'm sorry, for NXT TakeOvers, 63% for the W pay per views, 61% for the AEW pay per views, and 40% for NXT TV. So why is this important? What can we draw from this data? Uh, I don't think this is something to dismiss or to take lightly or to brush off as only being something from wrestling fans who don't matter. I think this sort of data, given it's the size of the sample... Now, surely we're dealing with wrestling fans here who have some sort of passion or some sort of dedication to wrestling in general. And surely, to some degree, there is some sort of, uh uh I hesitate to say, casual audience that is not captured here. But I think there is something significant that is captured here. And in fact, the change from May 2019, when the first, the earlier survey was con- was conducted, and distributed, to July 2020, when the survey for this year was conducted, the change in the number of people who say they watch Raw is remarkably similar to the change in the P18-49 to TV viewership uh, from May 2019 to July 2020. SmackDown is a different story because it gets the boost from being on USA Network to moving to Fox. But what am I talking about here? In May 2019, the average P18-49 TV rating for Raw was a 0.78. In July, this year, it was a 0.48. That is a 39% drop. In the case of the Reddit census, May 2019, they're at 47 points. July 2020, they're at 40 points. That's a drop of 34%. So TV viewership in the key demo down 39%. Red census for raw people who say they watch it down 34%, 39%, 34%. So pretty similar results. If anything, the Reddit census drop for raw viewers was a bit, a bit kinder, a bit lighter. So I, I think this flies in the face of a lot of arrogant comments that have been made by people Sometimes performers or people who are decision-makers in wrestling or people who are serving or want to serve decision-makers in wrestling who said things along the lines of, you know, you can ignore those fans who are complaining online because those are the kind of people, those people who say they're never going to watch again are the people who are never going to stop watching. It's not worth serving those people. They'll never stop watching. They'll complain and they'll always watch, and you can do whatever you want while you supposedly appeal to the wider, casual, general consumer. And by the way, it's unquestioned that the general consumer and the hardcore wrestling fan have widely different tastes. I think it's exaggerated how different their tastes would be. Uh, nor do I accept the line of argument that I hear put out sometimes that WWE and perhaps other companies have, in fact, uh given in to the hardcore fans and the internet fans and given them what they want. And that's why wrestling isn't a lot more popular. Uh I do not turn on Raw or SmackDown to the extent that I do, which I have more often than usual recently. I don't turn on those programs and see a product that is uh appealing to the hardcore internet smart mark and the... The survey responses between the years of 2019 and 2020 for this survey data that we're talking about here doesn't bear that out either. Where you can see people who say they're watching Raw and SmackDown has declined by double digits. So it's declined by double digits among this group that we might think of as perhaps representing the hardcore fickle internet wrestling fan. And it's declined at a similar rate in the the wider measurement of TV viewership in the key demo. And if for some reason you don't like the key demo, well, the total audience is down 30% as well over that same time period. And why does any of this matter? Well, I think we are in the middle of a changing of the hierarchy. We are in the middle of a changing of the order, which is coming even sooner than I predicted back in September and is being accelerated by the coronavirus. We are in the fourth consecutive week now where... In the key demo, AEW and NXT's audience combined have exceeded that of WWE Raw, and they're essentially equal to SmackDown. I don't know, because we're only getting one decimal place for SmackDown, because it's on network TV. Total audience for Raw and SmackDown are still larger than the combined total audience on Wednesday night for the two wrestling programs, but that gap over the last few months has gotten smaller. Not this week, but... In each of the last two weeks, AEW Dynamite itself exceeded Raw with at least one younger demographic group. Three weeks ago, the female 12 to 34 age group and one week ago, adults 18 to 34. I think this is a trend we're going to continue to see over time where Wednesday night wrestling increasingly becomes the leading night for wrestling with certain age groups and the lead of Raw and SmackDown viewership over those programs gets smaller and smaller. And I see no end in that trend while Vince McMahon is in control of WB creative. And I see no end to that while his health permits. And I think there are big questions coming in the next couple of years, which I'll get to, but I want to get to also, there's a good question asked to me on Twitter about whether NXT was in danger of being canceled by the USA Network. And it's a good question, but it's an easy question to answer. I think NXT is doing just fine. I think NXT would have to be doing far worse on Wednesday night to warrant being canceled. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that NXT will be renewed whenever its terms are up. Some people believe one year, two years. I would guess two years. NXT's viewership performance is on par with that of a normal USA original. NXT is far cheaper Even if USA were paying something on par of what it pays for SmackDown or Raw or what it pays for Raw, Fox pays for SmackDown. But even if USA were paying the big bucks, the big Raw dollars for NXT, which I highly, highly, highly doubt. Seems pretty much impossible by looking at their financial statements. But even if USA were doing that, NXT is still cheap programming. And I would guess that USA Network is paying very little relative to Raw to have NXT live or at least in non-pandemic times, live. But either way, having it first run 50 weeks a year, and the value to WWE of having NXT on the USA Network, the stated value, the one that they acknowledge, is that it's an opportunity to turn NXT into a third flagship program that attracts hundreds of millions of dollars a year in TV rights fees. Uh, I don't know about hundreds of millions of dollars of TV rights fees at this uh, viewership performance. But it's not out of the question that NXT could attract a good TV rights contract. But the other value to WWE of having NXT on Wednesday night on the USA Network for two hours from 8 o'clock to 10 p.m. Eastern, the other reason, or at least the other benefit that they don't talk about, is that NXT essentially gets to act as a shield against AEW Dynamite. The two programs run head-to-head and certainly do lower viewership as a result than they would do if they were not running head-to-head. We just talked about how the gap between Wednesday night wrestling and Raw and SmackDown is getting smaller. Now, I don't think that if NXT were not on the USA Network on Wednesday night, I don't think that AEW's audience would be that of AEW and NXT combined, but it would be higher and vice versa for NXT if AEW were not on TNT on Wednesday night and NXT was running unopposed. I think NXT's audience will be larger, but would not necessarily be equal to the two programs combined. Nonetheless, consider that if AEW was not opposed head-to-head by NXT, it, in comparison to Raw and SmackDown, would be beating Raw and SmackDown in additional demos and would be beating them more often. But with NXT there, head-to-head, that happens less often. The comparison between Raw and SmackDown and AEW Dynamite is at least less comparable with NXT standing in the way. So why is that important? Is it just bragging rights? Consider that in January, Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer reported that AEW and Warner Media made a four-year deal worth about forty-five million dollars annually. A four-year deal with an option for twenty twenty-four at an increased price. That means AEW's TV deal with Warner Media expires at the end of 2023 with an option for WarnerMedia to pick up the rights for an additional year through the end of 2024. So if WarnerMedia picks up the option and AEW has the deal with WarnerMedia through the end of 2024, and who knows, it's a long ways away. I I imagine there'll be a decision about the option well in advance, maybe a couple of years in advance. But if that option is picked up, then that means Raw and SmackDown and AEW Dynamite become available for renegotiation at about the same time. Raw Smackdown contracts in the U.S. expire at the end of September 2024, just one quarter, three months removed from when, if the option is picked up for AEW, when AEW's contract would be expiring. Now contracts are usually, uh, the negotiation begins about two years in advance of expiration. In the last couple rounds of WWE negotiations tell us that deals get completed about a year and a half ahead of their expiration. So if that all is the case, that would mean that WWE and AEW would be renegotiating their US TV deals possibly around the same time in early 2022. A little less than two years from now. Two years for the trends that we're currently on to continue. Two years maybe for Raw and SmackDown to be viewed less. And I think the bigger, tougher question to ask. It seems pretty certain that Rod Smackdown would be viewed less, if only because of the attrition in the linear TV environment. But it's, I think it's it's declining additionally because of the quality of the content. But the bigger question is whether AEW can increase its viewership or if AEW can hold up its viewership and maybe it becomes even more comparable to WWE's viewership currently. I think if Vincent uh, Vince McMahon remains healthy, that is the likeliest outcome that we end up in a 2022 where Raw, SmackDown, and Dynamite are quite competitive. By then we've probably got live audiences f- completely back. And if those three programs or if WWE programs and AEW's program are so competitive, so comparable, there's probably no way to justify the current difference in their average annual value. Raw, 265 million. SmackDown, 205 million. Dynamite, 45. And in fact, that 45 is for, uh, Dynamite and an additional hour they have yet to provide an additional program, one hour program, not a third hour of Dynamite. So for AEW providing three hours a week by then, let's say, at $45 million average annual value, that comes out to about $15 million per hour compared to WWE between USA Network and Fox, with its five hours at $470 million, getting about $94 million per hour. Uh, this is per hour per year, not per individual hour. But the point is to make the comparison. 15 for AW, 94 for Raw and SmackDown. Which means as things stand right now, WWE's two flagship programs are more than six times more valuable by the hour than AEW's programming. If by 2022, Dynamite is doing comparable or even better viewership than Raw or SmackDown, that disparity will not stand. I don't see how networks could look at the performance of Raw and SmackDown and consider the performance of AEW Dynamite and maintain a 6x difference between the two. And again, if the TV rights negotiations for WWE and AEW line up like that and the, the viewership performance lines up like that. I think it's going to be evident that there's a few possible conclusions to draw that. WWE programming is either overvalued or AEW programming is undervalued. Or a combination of those two uh, assertions. And you could still end up with WWE getting an increase. You could end up with WWE getting a uh, in an even offer compared to its current five-year deal. A decrease seems less likely. But who knows? It's a number of years away, and things are very uncertain in the media industry. But the point is, the TV revenues of WWE and AW could get a lot closer. At least U.S. TV revenues. WWE is distributed in a lot of countries, but you, the U.S. is by far its biggest market. But TV revenues for the two big wrestling companies could get very comparable, at least by the hour. Uh, I don't see AW producing five hours of TV anytime soon, and and I don't see. Uh, w producing any less, any fewer hours of wrestling content per week anytime soon. So I just wanted to consider all that stuff to kind of together, the consumer behavior in the wrestling fan uh, world, and what the future of TV rights negotiations might bring in a couple of years. And I guess I continue to just not see how the current order of the professional wrestling business can be sustained. If the industry leader continues to not make major stars, while at the same time being joined by a competitor with the TV program on a comparable major distribution platform like TNT. So and then from there, a quick WWE Q3 financial estimate. This is basically a bunch of numbers that I'm going to have to write an article about or at least publish a table for but you're hearing it here first on Russell WrestleNomics Radio. I will spare you reading through a bunch of numbers in audio, but my Q3 estimate for revenue is $222 million, which would be just short of Q2, with an operating income of $76 million and a net income of $50 million. What possibly could any of that mean in terms of plain English? Well 50 million dollars in net income would put WB over 100 million dollars of net income It would put WB at 120 million dollars of net income on the year in just in three out of the four quarters That means WB would break its profit record uh, its annual profit record with just three quarters. They wouldn't even need the fourth quarter to set the record but that is how I see the numbers playing out. That's Q3. We're in the middle of Q3. We are living Q3 right now. Q3 is July, August, and September. It ends in September. We get a report about one month after that. Usually in late October. Last year it was right on Halloween. Who could forget Halloween? Stranded in Riyadh. Come to think of it, if WB goes to the Amway Center, this may need to be updated. This will need to be updated if they do TV permanently out of the the Amway Center in Orlando. The, by that, I mean the profits would be lower because the expenses would be higher, obviously. And then from there, a SWOOT analysis, a strengths, weaknesses, opportunity, and threats analysis. Another thing I could and might do an article about, basically, this means taking a four-quadrant table and going through the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and the threats. The strengths and weaknesses are internal factors, internal to the company. The external factors are the opportunities and the weak and the threats. And as you may have guessed, the strengths and opportunities are helpful and the weaknesses and threats are harmful. So for WWE, their strengths, they are the wide margin leader in name ID among pro wrestling brands. They, are well, they have well-established global appeal and distribution. Everybody knows what, what WWE is Uh, A lot of people do. Certainly if you know a pro wrestling brand, you know WWE and they are on TV in many countries around the world. They tour in non-COVID years around the world. Third, they have strong legacy intellectual property. WWE owns its character likenesses, its video library, and the video library of nearly all pre-2000 United States wrestling video libraries. Fourth, they have a secure financial outlook with large guaranteed revenue sources from broadcast rights and from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And they have an established direct consumer streaming video service. We'll stay internal and go to weaknesses next. WWE is demonstrably challenged at developing new youthful star power. They have a controlling owner who is the CEO. And when I say controlling owner, I don't mean or don't just mean that he is He wants to be in control of everything. I just mean that he has the majority of the voting power among shareholders. Vince McMahon is the largest shareholder but does not actually own more than 50% of the shares. But the shares that he owns are what are called Class B shares whereas everyone except for McMahon family members, everyone else owns Class A mere common stock. The Class B shares that He and uh, Stephanie and Linda, formerly Shane, Shane appears to have disposed of all of his shares. But the shares that Vince own provide him with 10x voting power, which basically gives him 80% of all the voting power. So anyway, that is how he is a controlling owner, perhaps among other ways. But he is the controlling owner and CEO, and he is determined to control the creative direction of WWE. And under his direction, WWE is creating content that disenfranchises some fans and some talent. A third weakness, WWE has a weakening consumer metrics, including TV viewership, merchandise sales, and ticket sales. Opportunities on the horizon for WWE? Well, peak events, us mere mortals call them pay-per-views. Those are currently primarily self-distributed on the aforementioned direct-to-consumer video service but they may be better monetized by being sold for guaranteed revenue. And that very task will likely be one of the most important jobs that Nick Kahn, the new WWE Chief Revenue Officer and President, will have in his purview as he began working for the company this month. A second opportunity there is growing value for live sports content, which WWE has lots of seven hours a week on Major cable and network programming alone. Uh, The value of live sports content has increased uh, in recent years and there's no sign of stopping it. There is an argument out there that maybe the NFL, maybe the NBA, those rights continue to grow and other more minor sports don't continue to grow. But we'll see. Number three, WWE has emerging value in the gaming space where its brand IP is valued. That like I at something we've discussed, uh, I think, last week. The idea that maybe the gaming space is the next new frontier in new media. And it just so happens that WWE has an enormous amount of cash on its balance sheet, which leads one to speculate that maybe WWE is gearing up for a major acquisition or investment. So maybe there's a way for WWE to capitalize on the emerging value in the gaming space where there's some synergy, synergy there because WWE's brand IP is valuable, as evidenced by all the licensing deals that they have with uh, 2K Sports Take-Two and um, its various mobile game agreements. A fourth opportunity, the improved public perception and the attraction of lacking demographics could improve ad revenues and overall brand value. Now, WWE has made some progress in this area. Over the last several years, I think the, I don't have data around this, but the story that I hear and, and believe is that WWE uh, ad rates in the past, years past, certainly decades past, was, was quite low. And that's been improved quite a bit, maybe partly due to live sports becoming more valuable and becoming sort of the survivors of linear TV. But also, thanks to certain campaigns, uh, like the Hero in All of Us campaign that, that WWE uh, worked on along with NBC Universal a few years ago. Uh, WWE being a TVPG product that's more inviting of families, all of the WWE community work that the company does, all of its philanthropy, all of the work that Chief Brand Officer Stephanie McMahon has done in the last few years uh, has, has contributed to WWE having improved its perception with advertisers. Now, I think there's additional opportunity still there, not an opportunity that I expect the company will capitalize on, But if WWE could better attract younger audiences and more affluent audiences, I think under a complete creative overhaul, which is probably not going to happen within the lifetime of Vince McMahon, younger audiences are within their reach. More affluent audiences would be harder to reach, but I think there is some progress they can do there if over the long term you could show audiences that pro wrestling is doesn't have to be as lowbrow and sophomoric as W in particular often tends to come off, and that pro wrestling, while inherently violent to, to a degree, can tell rewarding and sophisticated stories, if only one had the discipline to tell them. External threats. Uh, clearly, COVID is compromising their media content, and it threatens their major partners, and has created uncertainty for their live event business. Uh, WWE's media content has been compromised by preventing live audiences from being there in attendance and that has affected the quality of the content. It has threatened the businesses of you know to some degree probably all of their major business partners whether that's Comcast and Fox or whether that's in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia or Take-Two or Mattel. COVID has affected the economy uh, broadly and who knows when WWE will be able to operate normal live events again. The live event business was not particularly profitable for them last year, uh, WrestleMania notwithstanding, but producing live events from major arenas where crowds are excited and doing any number of unpredictable things is essential to their programming and to their core content. Secondly, under threats, there are emerging competing wrestling brands, especially All Elite Wrestling, but to a much less significant degree there there are uh, there is new japan impact wrestling ring of honor out there as well and i think AEW is a unique threat that w has not faced since wcw uh, AEW is a threat very different from impact wrestling formerly known as total Nonstop action why do i think that not just because the former co-host of this program works there tna had somewhat competitive u.s distribution on spike tv but tna did not have comparable funding and did not have comparable uh, talent and star power. Uh, Nor did TNA exceed WWE for consumer and talent trust. Thanks to the wealth of the Khan family, uh, AEW has sufficient funding to compete for talent. It has comparable distribution through TNT. It has comparable, I would argue, superior ability to develop stars. And at least for now, it has superior consumer and in many cases, superior talent-trust relationships compared to WWE. So in again, in TNA's case, they never competed for talent quite like AEW is. Not sure that they were funded as well by the Carter family as AEW is funded, or at least its startup was funded by the Khan family. And TNA did not demonstrate a great ability to develop stars, and was often even worse than WWE in terms of cultivating fan and talent trust relationships. So anyway, a third threat for WWE, as alluded to earlier when I was talking about the opportunity associated with the growing value of live sports content, broadcast partners might pay less to retain WWE in order to compete to retain larger sports brands. and That would result in perhaps a lot less revenue or the end of growing TV revenue for WWE, something that could seriously affect their financial picture. A fourth threat, there is a fragmenting entertainment economy. As there are more and more entertainment options, it competes for time with WWE. And then finally, possible litigation uh, relating to the independent contractor employee issue, possibly other lawsuits. So that's WWE's strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threat analysis. I did one for AEW as well. And I found myself having a hard time uh, coming up with uh, points that were not defined in terms of what WWE does, uh, in terms of being a contrast to what WWE does. And I don't know if that just says something about my state of mind when I think about the pro wrestling business, but I want to say that it, it just emphasized to me how much of the opportunity for AEW is there because of what WWE is not doing. Um, but anyway, we'll start with strengths for AEW. Number one, the leadership has credibility in sports and media industries. Referring here mainly to Tony Khan, whose work with the uh, Jaguars in Jacksonville and Fulham Football Company has likely been a great help to allowing AEW to get TV deals, both in the US and in the UK. Two, the leadership has a strong understanding of current dynamics and historical lessons of the wrestling industry. So Tony Khan is not just somebody who has enough money and enough interest to start a wrestling league, but is somebody who has studied the wrestling business, who grew up as a big fan, who grew up reading The Wrestling Observer, and is probably well informed on the things in wrestling that have historically worked and not worked. Number three, financial backing from billionaire Khan family. So without the funding to make the startup happen, the startup doesn't happen. On to weaknesses. Talent executives who are in dual roles have little prior executive experience. So part of the deal to get Cody, the Young Bucks, Brandy Rhodes, and Kenny Omega, some of the most important talent that, that is on the roster, they were not only signed as talent, but were signed as executive vice presidents. However, they have no experience being executive vice presidents. They did collaborate to pull off All In on September 1st, 2018, which was very successful. But they have little experience being day-to-day leaders and decision-makers in a company the size of AEW. Two, the company is lacking in female stars. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, there's been a great deal of debate about uh, AEW's women's roster, but I think what one thing that everybody agrees on is that the women are not, as it stands right now, big stars. Uh, WWE's not only main roster, but their NXT roster, arguably even the Impact Wrestling female roster, is ahead on AEW when it comes to its stars for our women three, it's unclear what, what AEW's talent development strategy is. There was a press release from Cody that he's opening the nightmare factory school in Georgia, where it's, it's, it's said to be that there will be lessons in WrestleNomics, which I have, I will have, n- <laughs> I am no part of perhaps someone else who is known for WrestleNomics will be a part of that. But compared to WWE, uh, AEW doesn't have anything like a developmental territory or a performance center. It doesn't have, as W once had, an OVW or an FCW. So where will it get its talent from in the future? Will just shopping on the indies be enough? Fourth, under weaknesses, the startup nature of the company means it lacks having long-term investments already in hand in terms of intellectual property and social followings. So let's deal with what I mean by social followings. First, not just social media followers, uh, that that too. Uh, the more time that your account exists and is promoted on social media, the bigger your following becomes, generally. A company like WB has been on whatever a social media platform for probably as long as that platform has been uh, existing, and AEW has only existed since the beginning of 2019. So, not just social media, But in terms of name ID, in terms of being something that consumers have a a long-term relationship with and memories about, AW by nature is only just getting started there. And it lacks long-term investments in intellectual property. It only owns the video, for example, that it has produced in the last year and a half. Unlike WB, it doesn't have a massive video library of its own history, or of other promotions, nor are there really any other promotions to acquire in terms of at least inactive promotions with video libraries. If AEW started its own uh, video streaming service, the AEW Network, it would have a relatively small video library if it were to start up today. And last, under weaknesses, and I realize in, in some demographics this may be a strength, AEW has no known drug policy for its talent which is basically the case for every other wrestling company except for WWE which has what they call the talent wellness policy that doesn't involve drug testing. Uh clearly the the drug culture in pro wrestling is not what it once was. But pro wrestlers uh who who punish their bodies week after week and tra- travel regularly, I think are disproportionately at risk to abuse drugs. And I think even in a form of entertainment where the winners and losers are predetermined Uh, Pro wrestling is nonetheless a field where uh, historically and currently, uh, maybe not as much as in the past, but still nonetheless currently, pro wrestlers are judged by decision makers based on their looks, based on what their bodies look like, and the freedom to use performance enhancing drugs like anabolic steroids creates an unlevel playing field where talent, again despite the matches being predetermined, are competing with each other. For the top spots in the company. And I would argue that even the perception that some people are using PEDs, even if they are not, encourages a culture where people use PEDs. So why does this matter? Ultimately, it's a risk to talent health, even if you think steroids are totally safe. Wrestlers, I think, are still at disproportionate risk to abuse other kinds of drugs that I think we would all agree are not totally safe. So talent health is left uh, less protected. And there's a public relations risk in addition to that. If there is a scandal, if there are arrests, or if God forbid someone dies. So moving on to opportunities. And the rest here as you'll see, this is where it got really hard for me to define these in, in terms that were not in contrast to WWE. So first, competitor WWE uh, has left some fans and talent disenfranchised and eager to find an alternative. I think the overall opportunity that makes uh, AEW a viable business plan has uh, several necessary conditions, uh, including funding, including sufficient connections to get the TV deal, including getting certain talent. But one of those necessary conditions was there being a strong appetite out there for an alternative to WWE. And secondly... As was the case for WB, there's an increasing value for live sports-like content. And I think I've gotten into some detail in the last hour how that's relevant to AEW. On to threats. First, competitor WB is the industry leader in the perception of businesses, in the perception of talent, and in the perception of consumers. So clearly, WB is able to compete with the WB. Wow, that's a sentence. Uh, WB is able to compete with AEW... Clearly for talent. Maybe in the future they'll be competing for certain business partnerships or advertisers, but obviously W has put NXT on Wednesday night head to head with AEW's T V program. Uh secondly, possible litigation. I don't know that AEW is as at risk when it comes to the independent contractor employee issue. We could probably do a whole separate show. In fact, you know, memorably when Mookie and I were in Chicago for All In, and we did our podcast live from the StarCast Hotel the, the morning after All In. We had a, a long conversation about the independent contractor employee issue and all the, the complicated legalities surrounding it and the tests that you can talk through to try to identify whether our worker is an employee or an independent contractor. And you can, you can find that in the archives, and I, I believe it is on the Russell Ruslanic YouTube channel also. Uh Some AEW talent have dual roles as employees and as contracted talent. Perhaps AEW could make an argument that their uh wrestlers who are only independent contractors for them are not as under as much control certainly compared to WWE wrestlers. Um, many AEW wrestlers, including Joey Janela, comes to mind as somebody who's taking bookings uh, on independent promotions. There is maybe less control in other ways terms of scripting, maybe the number of dates. So that's what I have for AEW. I think I could make the AEW SWAT analysis more robust. If you can think of any additional strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, or threats for AEW or WWE for that matter, which I did not mention, then please tweet me as if I had made a easily disprovable factual error. But no, please do. Let me know. You know, if you have any ideas, uh, I'm going pretty long here. We'll talk briefly about uh, WrestleMania 3. So, Bix did a good uh, I think Substack article about WrestleMania 3 and research he's done related to it. Uh, I'm talking about the attendance, of course. Uh, WWE, of course, famously, mythically, announces 93,173 people in attendance at the Silver Dome in, uh, in Pontiac, Michigan in 1987. Hogan and Andre, Steamboat and Savage. Dave Meltzer of The Observer reported in a, an article that he did in The Observer, I think in 2001 or 2002, after getting access to WWE Records, that the actual attendance for WrestleMania 3 was 78,500. Uh, i talked about in previous episodes of Wrestleomics here that if the stadium capacity for football was 80,000, and considering there's basically no stage for entrance that blocks off large numbers of seats, so considering the football capacity plus some number, probably thousands on the floor, that the attendance, maybe the paid attendance was 78,000, but that the total attendance had to be somewhere around, I said, I think 86,000. Uh, Bix in his research finds that it's maybe around 88,000. So I did talk a bit with Dave himself, uh, Meltzer about, about this. And it seems like the sticking point here is about what the actual, uh, capacity or football capacity of the silver dome was uh, officially there's there's record official official record out there that the Pontiac Silverdome uh, capacity was eighty thousand six hundred and thirty eight. I have an NFL record book from nineteen ninety two saying it's eighty thousand five hundred. You know there's uh, mentions in the Detroit Free Press in nineteen eighty six and in nineteen eighty seven that the capacity is eighty thousand six hundred and thirty eight. But Dave thinks that the actual football capacity was. 72,000 and not 80,000. And Dave knows how he and Zane Bresloff, who was an event promoter for WFNWCW, how Zane would book arenas and find out that the capacity, the official capacities for the arenas were exaggerated. So that does seem plausible that the stadium capacity for the Silverdome was not in fact the 80,000 that it was publicly said to be. I guess the next piece of evidence that I would like to see is uh, some sort of record from a, a public authority like the police or an emergency management uh, organization or the fire department or a, a gate receipt for uh, an NFL game, uh, one that sold out preferably, <laughs> for the lines at at the Silverdome or any event at the Silverdome that sold out to capacity that would have a ticket drop count on it. Or again, any sort of record from a public authority, which seems probably difficult to find at this point from 1987, but something that would show better evidence of what the capacity really was. So that's what I have for this week. I want to close with a a final note. I think I'm ready to say that I'm thinking about uh, restarting the Patreon for WrestleNomics, which we had way back in the day. All, all two years ago. But we stopped doing, uh, around the time Mookie had to, to leave to go work for AEW. So I'm thinking about restarting the Patreon, but I'm not thinking about, uh, putting any content at this point behind the paywall. Uh, I would be doing this only in a PBS type of way. If you want to support, uh, you can. If you want to listen for free, you can. Just as I continue to do a lot of this research, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun and it's rewarding. And I've realized of late there are some expenses. There are some things that I would, would like to buy to allow me to do better research and better podcasts and a more professional presentation. So just things like uh, better hosting for RussellLombs.com, uh, upgraded software like Microsoft Office for the spreadsheets, improved audio equipment, recurring fees. I am, now that I'm following the legal world more, I am incurring, incurring more pacer fees when I download public legal documents. Uh, pull star fees for getting some event data, Uh, subscription services like Seeking Alpha related to stocks, uh, newspapers.com, which is a great newspaper archive, and there are some investments I can make in terms of graphics and marketing. So that's a thought. That's not going to happen immediately, Patreon, starting. But uh, give me some feedback on that if you would. I'm thinking about a $5 per month and probably making their away separately probably from the Patreon that you could make uh, one-time contributions if you wanted to do so. And I realize we do have a number of... We still have the Patreon account from when it was originally around, so we do have a number of users who are considered patrons even though they have been charged in two years. And I have every intention of giving those people uh, plenty of notice if and when this gets restarted. And I would gladly refund anybody if they missed the notices and ended up being charged and didn't want to be charged. So if you have any thoughts on that or on anything that I talked about today, you can tweet me at WrestleNomics or at Brandon Thurston. And I'm Brandon Thurston, and I'll talk to you next time.